Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today on May 25th, 2023, we're going to be talking about trade and some of the trade policies of our most recent presidents. Christine McDaniel is coming on to talk about this, and I'm so excited. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Her research focuses on international trade, globalization, and intellectual property rights. Welcome on. Thank you, Juliet. Great to be here. So before we get into trade... What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? The most important thing people in your generation should know that you might not. I would think that would be that the net benefits of the government trying to protect domestic workers and producers from import competition are much smaller than the net costs of of doing that. And while it might sound great to, you know, to you, to really anybody, uh, you know, on the street, you know, hey, the government's going to, you know, help protect you from, you know, import competition, the, uh, the, the, the net effects are, you know, are, are negative, right? So it does, it might help a small group of people, but the cost on everybody else is so much greater. And, uh, you know, just for instance, when the U.S. put put steel tariffs on uh, in the, during the last administration, you know, it did help uh, a few U.S. steel companies, right? But there's higher, there are higher costs for, all the companies, U.S. companies, small, medium-sized, large companies in the U.S. that use steel to make, you know, auto parts or cutlery or or manufacturing equipment, they'll have to pay higher prices, and that means that um, they didn't have, uh, you know, the uh, as much uh, revenues, you know, net revenues to reinvest back in the company, to put back into their workers, to hire more, to hire more workers. Not to mention. They were less competitive uh, in the U.S. and abroad because they're competing with people who do have access to globally priced inputs, right? Um, and then there's these studies out there that show, I mean, like each steel job saved in the U.S. because the tariffs cost Americans about six hundred and fifty thousand dollars per job. So be leery when you when you hear of uh, po- politicians promising to protect you from imports. Let's get right into it. I mean, we're already kind of in it. Um, Donald Trump's presidential bid was grounded in an anti-globalization platform, some of what you were already talking about, that included reviving American manufacturing jobs and steel and all of that, and saving the middle class from extinction with a special focus on cracking down on China. Um, In office, 
he attacked um, the multilateral trading system that was built after World War II and unilaterally imposed tariffs on American purchases of steel, as you were mentioning, and redesigned NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which we'll get into shortly. Um, and then he killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There's a lot of stuff that was done. Um, he also refused to appoint new members to the WTO, the World Trade Organization's appellate body, which rendered um, the their the World Trade Organization's dispute resolution mechanism entirely defunct. Um, he went to economic war with our allies and close trading partners in the name of America first. Just some information. Uh, So how much of a break from our previous approach to trade were President Trump's policies and kind of this new, maybe not new, narrative? So, you know, I think there there is something, there is this one quote a friend of mine said, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Okay. I'm not a swearer by the way, and if my kids are listening to this, I, I'm only quoting somebody else. But somebody once said about President Trump, yeah, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. You know, and I do think that that, um, that appealed to a lot of people, that sort of that outlook. Um, and, you know, it does, it does kind of feel good to have someone, you know, who says they're going to st- stand up for you and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and get, get a better deal for you and all this. Um, but you know, as everything, the deal, the devil's in the details and what really that meant was just a whole bunch of tariffs, uh, that were placed basically more taxes on U.S. imports and then other countries retaliated. And then of course that meant, you know, um, U.S. exporters were, uh, were, were faced with, you know, those, um, those, those tariffs on, uh, on their goods. When, uh, when they were trying to sell abroad, so and then that just boomeranged right back into into um, the U.S. economy in a very bad way. So, um, so I would um, also, you know, remind people that while President Trump moved to, uh, you know, on the um, WTO appellate body membership uh, was sort of the final nail in that coffin, at least for now. He wasn't the first to to um, you know <clears throat> put that put that nail in. So it actually uh, began uh, with well during the Bush administration, you know, forty three Bush forty three. Um, this this started this discussion started about how the appellate body was interpreting particular rules in the WHO in ways that were not necessarily intended to be. And there were some allegations that the appellate body went above and beyond what was in the text um, and uh, in a way that gave China a lot more room to subsidize and uh, more leeway on its state control of its economy. Uh, and um, and then Obama, President Obama, um, his team decided uh not to also not you know not to renew the um the the uh, the appellate body member and then um and so trump just really kind of continued with that but because of the timing you know um it was it, it became sort of uh 
paralyzed under the Trump administration. But his administration definitely wasn't the first to voice these concerns. Um, because I haven't actually done a lot of this on the podcast. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> um, I was wondering if you could give us kind of a, a brief overview of the WTO and its role in trade and America in relationship to that. Um, just to, I don't know, get a more generalized understanding of how important this is. Well, so, you know, trade, trade economists think trade is, is really very, very important. Uh, and, but in the big picture, uh, trade is, you know, about, you know, it's about, it's less than 20% of GDP, far less. Um, but that's largely because the U.S. is such a big economy. But the, um, about half of the U.S., U.S. trade is, uh, is business to business trade. So um, small, medium, large sized businesses depend on, you know, the ability to access intermediate inputs, you know, components they need to, to make their things. Um, you know, they want to be able to buy the, the best quality the best price. And that might be the, the company down the street, but it also might be the kind uh, you know, company in a different country. Right. And so, it's one of those things where you don't really realize how important it is until it's gone or until it's really hard to do. And that's why when we saw the tariffs go on, uh, there were thousands and thousands of U.S. companies that were complaining, asking if they could get you know an exclusion from those tariffs. So, so uh, trade, it affects every single worker, every single company in the United States, either directly or indirectly. You know, just look around you, you know, uh, something that you're probably holding in your hand or looking at was, may have been designed in one country, but made in another. Uh, if you're holding a smartphone, for instance, your iPhone that was designed in California, but assembled in China, right? So the, the ways that trade affect our lives every day, you know, are from when you wake up in the morning to in terms of what you have for breakfast, your coffee, uh, those ingredients are more likely than not to uh, come from abroad. Um, you know, the, the clothes you wear, the cars you drive, um, the, uh, you know, it, it truly is a global economy we're living in. And you can see this in, in everything that you eat and consume and use and do throughout the day. And what is the WTO's role in that? How does the WTO influence global trade? Well, so the WTO, the World Trade Organization, is that is a, a member-driven organization, and the um, it, it uh, basically uh, whole it was a, it was a chance for countries to come together in the mid '90s and commit to. Uh, uh, really clear rules on reciprocity. So in terms of um, if you cut your trade barriers for me, I'll cut your, I'll cut my trade barriers for you. And then we, we commit to this. And we also say to each other, um, if we, if one of us breaks these rules, then we're okay with um, the rule breaker getting kind of sued 
in court, if you will, and that's where the dispute settlement mechanism comes in in the WTO. Before the WTO, we just had the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and that was really huge right after World War II, as you were saying in the beginning, Juliet. And that was uh, really the first major international agreement uh, in terms of trade, in terms of uh, countries committing to uh, lower tariffs through reciprocity, which is really brilliant when you think of it, right? Because how can you um, how can you get countries to to agree to lower their barriers? Well, economists will tell you, you know, it doesn't matter what the other country is doing; you should lower your barriers. And on paper, that's definitely true. But you know, in practice, we don't see a lot of countries doing that. In practice, we see a lot of negotiations, and uh, and so the the gap was. A, a real movement forward in terms of reciprocity, and then the WTO brought just brought in a lot more um, to that, right? So not just tariffs, but a lot of non-tariff barriers, quotas, um, in terms on agriculture rules, on subsidies uh, rules. Uh, there was a whole chapter on subsidies around large civil aircraft, you know, Boeing and Airbus. Um, a whole chapter on agriculture, um, a, a chapter on services. So uh, the WTO not only locked in the tariff uh, commitments, but a lot of non-tariff commitments. Um, and then the, the two big principles the WTO uh, I guess hinges on is one is called the most favored nations principle. That is, uh, you can't treat any imports from one country better or worse than you treat any imports from another country unless you have a, 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 a like a, a real legitimate trade agreement with them. Um, so there's that, number one. Number two is something called the, um, the uh, national treatment principle. And that is you can't treat domestically produced goods any better than you treat imported goods, right? Or you can't treat imports any worse than you treat domestically produced goods. So basically, it just tries to level set everything, right? In terms of um, all all your uh, trading partners on level ground, and then also your domestic products, goods and services, are on level ground with imported goods and services, at least to the extent the agreement covers that. So it's it's a nice um it's it's kind of uh democratizes trade in a way someone said that once i guess it makes a lot of sense if you think about uh you know it's it's with wto all countries are on the same uh on the same level big countries don't have it hold any more power than small countries you know might doesn't really make right under wto rules because everybody agreed to those rules and everybody um is open to getting sued if they don't follow the rules. Huh. Thank you for that uh, exposing and comprehensive uh, explanation. Um, So back to Trump a little bit now. Has he achieved his policy objectives? And I guess what have the consequences been, if not, or if yes? The consequences of Trump in terms of trade? Yeah, of of his policies, did the things he passed meet their objectives or not? And 
what happened as a consequence? Well, so one thing he so he did a lot uh, in terms of on, on trade. One thing he did is he withdrew the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a trading block uh, between uh, you know almost a dozen countries and the Pacific that did not include China, and you know that that agreement was seen as a real opportunity for the U.S. to write the rules on trade, especially with our Pacific trading partners and not China write the rules on trade, right? So the WTO goes only so far, right? There's a lot of room to modernize our trading rules. And it's really hard to do this in the WTO because you need all 164 countries to agree. Uh, So we haven't had a WTO agreement in a really, really, really long time. Uh, but at the same time, there's lots of countries that are ready to do more liberalization or want to get more clarity and transparency on key issues like, for instance, e-commerce, right? Um, or, um, or the role of state-owned enterprises. And, the, um, and so what the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, was, was an opportunity to get more transparency, and more clarity and more um, openness uh, commitments on digital trade, e-commerce, and uh, for countries to understand or kind of agree to what they could and could not do in terms of state-run or state-owned companies. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was it was really major in, in terms of those rules and rule setting in terms of the Pacific. Um, a little bit more market access, um, but I think the TPP was more about the trade rules than it was about market access. Um, I mean, there's some market access in there, but it wasn't groundbreaking, um, except for Japan on in agriculture. So when he pulled us out of TPP, that was huge, and then um, and that was a big loss to you know, uh, especially U.S. agriculture because the the extra market access that they were going to get, especially in Japan and Vietnam, was quite um, quite notable. So, um, but they, uh, the Trump administration realized this, and they uh, they did a deal with Japan, uh, and they did get Japan to uh, open up their ag market to U.S. to the extent that that would have happened through the TPP. And there's actually a a wild backstory to that we can talk about if you want but so anyway it was sort of like sort of like two steps back one step forward i I think on the trump and tpp thing um and uh but you know the the thing is australia and japan are quietly leading the way on the trans-pacific partnership it's now called the comprehensive and progressive uh trans-pacific partnership but those um, those countries are are still moving forward with that, and um, and so in a lot of ways, you know, our 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 goals are still being met. There, we're just not at the table, um, and it's not being done exactly the way we have, we would have done it. But I think big picture, um, the fact that you know, the, there are a lot of countries in the Pacific who are doing these rules that the U.S. had a big hand in writing, not China that goal is to be accomplished. Um, another thing Trump did is, of course, the 
Section 232 tariffs. I'll never forget that day in um, the office. He held the live press conference, in the White House, or was it the um, Eisenhower building? But live press, press conference had all the steel CEOs there and announced uh, he was doing 25% uh, steel tariffs. And, um, and then also seven and a half or 15% on aluminum. And he was doing that in the name of national security. And that was a, I think a real game changer in terms of international trade rules, because that is um, a real big no, no to do in the WTO. Uh, you only invoke you know, national security concerns. Um, if, if um, you have a, to a very strong legitimate case. It's not something to be taken lightly, given that the U.S. steel industry is so politically influential in Washington and, and already, um, quote-unquote, enjoys so much uh, protectionism from imports. The fact that he was doing this for steel was, um, you know, was quite suspect. And also the Secretary of Defense at the time had publicly stated that uh, those tariffs were not even needed for U.S. national security. So the case was pretty weak uh, on national security grounds uh, to the extent, you know, public information is available and, and experts in the area have spoken about it. But, um, and of course, you know, um, other countries took the U.S. to the WTO over that. We lost the case. And then the WTO, uh, well, the U.S. basically said, well, we're going to go ahead with it anyway. And by the way, you shouldn't tell us what to do in national security. <laughs> so, um, so this, I think, um, you know, will really be remembered as um, a time where the U.S., um, you know, uh, may, uh, maybe you could say abused um, that particular national security provision in the WTO. And now, um, you know, opens the door for other countries to do so as well. Because what's to stop other countries from saying, oh, yeah, you know, those blue widgets we import, well, they're a national security threat and we're now imposing 25% tariffs on them. Or, you know, pick pick a, pick a product, right? So I think that was a, that's a pretty big legacy he, he left. Um, and then... Uh, Right after those big tariffs, because those tariffs were on all U.S. imports, what he did is said, oh, well, now we're going to do these um, deals. So whoever wants to do a deal with U.S., um, you know, uh, let's talk. And so the EU uh, carved out a deal. South Korea carved out a deal. Japan carved out a deal. Australia, um, they actually got off scot-free somehow. Um, the... Um, and so it was a lot of uh, different deal making in the background, which you know really does go against the the WTO principle of um, treat everybody the same. So one thing that seems pretty pretty clear is that Trump effectively made popular or not popular. Well, yes, maybe, but I meant to say protectionism popular again. Um, so. Now that there's President Biden, the new sheriff in town, have things changed? How do you compare their approaches? The actual policies haven't changed, but the the tone that uh, that 
by which they're delivered has changed. I think in a lot of ways, it's Biden's trade policy. It's like Trump wine in a Biden bottle. It's really the same thing, but, you know, it just has different packaging. So it really hasn't um, changed. If, if anything, you know, Biden has just taken it even further in terms of um, even more tariffs and um, and even more provisions that make it harder to import. So then how do you assess the impact of Trump's tariffs on China and other countries on our economy and our consumers? And I guess like this is still happening with Biden. So should he keep them, remove them or modify them? Well, now what's happened is the, um, you know, that there, there are some legitimate national security issues that have emerged. And um, I mean, they were always there, but they've gotten much bigger, you know, um, you know, over the past five, 10 years. And, um, and now the, these legitimate national security issues are getting kind of um, mixed up with veiled calls, you know, with protectionism. And, um, and that's one thing that Republicans, Democrats agree on is the, the quote unquote China threat. (laughs) And so, um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of efforts to, um, or calls for protectionism measures, but in the name of national security. Right. And so, um, while Biden is still continuing with, uh, you know, the, the China tariffs, for instance, um, and the steel and aluminum tariffs, you know, it's it's uh, it's easier now to to make the or just kind of claim that there's a national security case for it. Um, you know, a lot easier to do that today than it would have been, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So. Um, so, yeah, no, Biden's still doing it, but uh, but kind of dressing it up as a, you know, is a um, national security uh, slash, you know, addressing the China threat um, ish, uh, response. And, um, and that seems to be pretty popular with this Congress and the American public at the moment. But in terms of, you know, how it's affecting the U.S., well, tariffs are one of those things where one way to think about this is death by a thousand cuts, right? Because every time there's a new tariff on U.S. imports, it it either hits you at the checkout aisle or it hurts the U.S. economy in terms of U.S. companies now have to pay a higher price to get what they need to make what they make, right? And so those um, all those import taxes make U.S. manufacturers' costs go up. They make U.S. manufacturers less competitive, both here and abroad, and they either will lose sales or they'll take the hit in the markup. Right. And, um, and, you know, we do see this in, um, in the sectors where they've been more hit by tariffs and, um, but, you know, it's not like, um, you know, it's, it's not a huge significant overnight effect. You know, it's something that slowly builds up. When we look at this in the data with rigorous methods, we uh, and, and we disentangle the effects of the tariffs from everything else, we can see the effects in terms of 
higher uh, producer prices. We also see the effects in terms of on uh, on U.S. jobs because you know as firms um, you know take the hit on markup, um, they will pull back in other areas like employment, and then also on the retaliatory effects. Those uh, U.S. companies that got hit by retaliatory tariffs uh, did shrink their employment base. So that's how we're we're kind of seeing the the bad side of this pile up for America. And then um, I, I read a Peterson Institute study that that noted that if we reduce tariffs, then inflation would actually decrease by a meaningful amount. Um, can you kind of explain that connection with us? Because I think that this relates to the death by a thousand cuts, because it feels like inflation. Every time I go to check out, it's another cut. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so if you look at the uh, price index for U.S. goods and you break it down by tradable goods and non-tradable goods, you see this huge difference in terms of um, U.S. tradable goods ha- have experienced stark, stark deflation over the years, while the non-tradable goods in the U.S. have experienced, um, you know, a, a, a steady march of um, of upward. Um, price movement. So, so what the tariffs do is, you know, they reverse a little bit of that, and now they're putting a little bit more uh, pressure on those prices of tradable goods. Um, reducing these tariffs will not solve the inflation issue at all, uh, but it certainly wouldn't hurt, right? And um, I mean, I've I've seen some studies that show it might shave shave like maybe, you know, between a half and one and a half percentage points uh, off. Um, The most credible ones I've seen, it's probably less than one percentage point. Um, But that doesn't mean just because it's, you wouldn't solve it, we shouldn't do it, right? There's a, there's usually never um, just one solution to any, any problem. You have to do a lot of, excuse me, a lot of different things. Um, And you know, uh, the inflation that U.S. economy is experiencing is is um, due to a lot more than just the tariffs. But sure, I mean, cutting the tariffs uh, d- definitely wouldn't hurt um, and um, and would actually help the you know lower income households the most because they're the ones that spend a higher share of their paycheck on the goods that are getting hit by uh, most of the tariffs. So I guess. Obviously, there's there's national security, but are there any sort of prospects for any comprehensive U.S.-China trade deal? Um, and I guess, what are the main areas of contention and cooperation between the two countries in terms of trade? Well, a U.S.-China trade deal would be absolutely amazing in terms of the economics, right? Because you get so much more out of trade deals when you do them with countries that are very different from you. Um, and, you know, just in terms of, um, and, and not to mention what, when you do them with larger countries and China, you know, just in terms of population over four times the size and in terms of economic makeup, you know, they have abundance in uh, labor, especially lower, lower wage labor. And, um, and there's just a lot of room there for huge gains from trade. There's also a lot of room, though, for um, there would be some pretty big adjustment costs in the U.S. Um, 
we, you know, with trade, there's, there's always going to be winners and losers. And, um, but, you know, but the U.S. China trade, I mean, we've, the U.S. economy has pretty much absorbed the brunt of the adjustment costs that we would be going through with China. So, um, you know, there's, there's obviously still a lot more areas there, but it's, it's not so much about tariffs as it is, um, the, the room for improvement is more in other areas like um, technology transfer rules, protecting intellectual property, protecting um, you know, uh, legitimate uh, technology transfers, cybersecurity, and rules on state-owned enterprises. Um, so I don't really see a U.S.-China trade deal in our future anytime soon. Because the um, you know the American public just does not have the stomach to um, to really freely open up um, their market to a huge economy that is state run and will subsidize you know companies um, for for their own uh, reasons that um, you know don't comport with um, with the principles of of reciprocity, it can be very disruptive, you know, for um, other trading partners when you start to subsidize your um, your own industries. Um, so, um, so there's the economic and non-economic aspects of of that potential U.S.-China trade deal. And then, did you say national security was the other question? Well, I, I said kind of uh, aside from national security, because obviously that plays into it, but that's, uh, we're running low on time and I'd like to touch on some other things. Um, in, in particular, so so we've talked about China, but what about um, the US and the EU, especially with all these subsidies? Like what what is that stage of trade look like? The U.S. and the EU are, you know, very strong, uh, still very strong partners and allies in in, um, in international trade. The the U.S. and EU are starting to cooperate very closely on particular key sectors. For instance, remember those steel tariffs. Well, um, the EU came to the U.S. said, "Hey, you know, can we sort out a deal here? You know, we um." We're we don't we're not a, a target for you guys on um, why you put you know we don't think our steel is a national security threat to you uh, so can we please work out a deal and so yes the U.S. and the EU worked out a deal but they actually did more than that they they um, they started writing their own rules on on carbon intensity and um, and the greenhouse gas emissions of the production process around steel. And so it's almost as if they're starting to kind of create their own um, trade bubble for steel. In other words, if you can, if you're inside this bubble and you can commit to making steel in a, you know, in an environmentally friendly way, and you can also commit to, you know, not doing X, Y, and Z, then, um, we can have free trade and steel with each other, right? And so they're trying to get, um, you know, I think the idea is to get other countries to to join that group as well. Um, 
So that's that's been kind of interesting to, to watch. Um, for 40 years now, the United States and the European and the Europeans have um, been trying to address a so-called overcapacity problem in in the, in the world steel market, and um, and you know, which is basically a result of some countries subsidizing their steel sector, and um, and they haven't been able to do it. So this is kind of the EU and the U.S. taking matters into their own hands and saying, well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to create this this bubble with these rules. And you know, whoever else wants to join, you can talk to us, right? So that's, I think, a space to watch. And then on technology. So with um, advanced technology and computer chips, you know, the semi-monolithic integrated circuit, the um, these are this is an area where um, increasingly can be used for military uses. And so um, countries want to make sure they are not putting a lot of effort into this high-tech stuff and then selling it to countries that will turn around and use it against them militarily, right? So uh, there's been a number of um, new announcements uh, against uh, selling particular items uh, dual use items uh, like high tech items to china and russia but that takes a lot of cooperation and we're also seeing there a lot of cooperation between the united states and the european union so there's a lot of um deep cooperation um across the atlantic and um and it's it's been it's been really kind of exciting to watch and then um how about Canada and Mexico, right? So we had NAFTA, which was the force between behind the creation of this remarkable North American supply chain. So I guess what was NAFTA and what did it accomplish? And then what is the USMCA and how is it different from NAFTA and how do you evaluate that? Okay, so NAFTA was basically, um, well, before NAFTA, we had the U.S.-Canada free trade agreement, right? So um, so NAFTA was basically just bringing Mexico into the U.S.-Canada free trade space. And it was a match made in heaven. I mean, you had, um, you know, Mexico, very different um, economic makeup than Canada and the U.S. So Mexico could focus on certain parts of the supply chain. Canada and the U.S. could focus on other parts, you know, and it was a win-win. Um, it was a win-win conversation. I mean, a, a win-win um, uh, economic partnership. The U.S. being so productive in, in agriculture, um, you know, and, and now has you know Canada and Mexico as their number one uh, export. Uh, well, their very top export markets. So these three countries just very close in terms of uh, trade partnership, but then it also, more or less, and also in terms of how they see the role of the state <clears throat> and um, and their commitment to openness. So we have seen, though, um, in the with this current Mexican government, the um, a, a bit of a, a U-turn on some of that, which has been uh, concerning, but. You know, all, all countries kind of go through their, um, you know, it kind of ebb and flow in their 
their um, commitment to openness, uh, just like the United States. So, um, but it's a constant, you know, it's one of those things where like, think of it like you're on a mountain and you're going to, if you're not trying to, to keep walking up, you're just going to kind of slide back down, right? So uh, there's always going to be forces there to pull you back down. <laughs> there's always going to be um, sectors, you know, in, in, in the economy that um, feel like they need special protection or, or um, they're trying to curry favors. And so governments are constantly trying to uh, do this balancing act. And, uh, but overall, the North American uh, trade and economic partnership is still very tight, very close, and um, and it's so important to all three countries. You and asked then, about the um, yeah, you asked about the U.S. Mexico Canada agreement. That's supposed to be an update of NAFTA. NAFTA was definitely in need of an update because it didn't have a lot of the new economy stuff. Like it didn't have rules on digital trade or e-commerce, for instance. And so, um, because, well, you know, in the mid nineties, when NAFTA was being signed, there was this little company called Amazon (laughs) and they were selling used books online and they went public in 1997, right? So e-commerce wasn't really a thing then, but today it's the lifeblood of the global economy, right? Digital flows of of information, uh, financial transactions, uh, and these agreements that we signed back in the '90s really all need to be updated now to account for, you know, just the reality of our new modern economy. So that's one thing that USMCA did, and then that was a good thing. And then there are other things too that sort of took us a little bit backwards, uh, the USMCA put some really strict rules in, in terms of the rules on auto production, uh, with an eye on electric vehicles. So to keep North American auto trade, free trade, uh, countries had to commit to using more North American content. And they also, Mexican had to commit to, um, some labor labor laws so um that was a little bit of a a backslide there in terms of the original intent of of nafta um in some people's eyes um but um but overall um you know i I think it's fair to say that you know the the e-commerce digital trade chapter and usmca um you know made it worth it so i have one last question for you before our actual last question um if you were the absolute ruler of the united states for a day on trade maybe maybe not everything that's a lot um what reforms would you implement with respect to trade would you go for unilateral free trade or would you start with low-hanging fruit or i guess what would you do you mean in today's world yep so you have to um so i'd have to um face the current situation yeah yeah <laughs> that, that's, a, a that's a really hard question <laughs> um as an economist i mean um y- you know it's that that's a really hard question because obviously that uh, an obvious answer would be unilateral free trade 
But then, of course, you give up a lot of your leverage, your negotiating leverage, right? Because there's a lot of things that we want other countries to do, um, but they will only do it if they get something from us, right? So we kind of have to, to um, <laughs> we have to have some some leverage, right? Um, we have to have some, keep some special cards in our back pocket um, that other countries will want. So, um, you know, I, I think one thing um, I think has been pretty clear is the the um, lack of um, effectiveness of of industrial policy. So, undoing some of these buy American provisions that um, have been tacked on to some of these bigger efforts in terms of our infrastructure uh, efforts, big bills on infrastructure, a lot of money going into com uh, computer chips um, and the energy transition. Um, I would claw back all those Buy America provisions um, and really focus on why we were doing it in the first place. And that usually gets you to the point of, um, you know, just investing, um, sure, invest in infrastructure and in education and research and development, uh, but but don't try to micromanage, you know, how U.S. companies and entities uh, can do it. I see. Uh, all right. So I have one last question for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to share and to talk to us about all of this. Um, I've learned so much. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? That would be the reason for free trade, right? So the, the case for free trade, you can make a pretty strong efficiency case, right? I mean, the, um, the efficiency case for free trade is clear in terms of allocative efficiency, and I won't bore you with that. I mean, but that's all indisputable. There's, um, but the reason to trade is I've come to, to um, believe it's not efficiency, right? It's that over time, each generation gets a chance to mold its skills to the dynamism of an economy that has trade, that's open to the world, right? And so, you don't do that you get people stuck into these stagnant situations but when you're open to goods and services and ideas and people from around the world it encourages innovation encourages human flourishing and it's true you know at, at any point in time there, there there will be people that struggle right because that's just inevitable uh, whether it's from trade or technology but the next generation, right? Their children are going to do better, right? Um, and then I guess uh, the other, um, the other big reason uh, that I didn't that I didn't see earlier was just that the alternative to to free trade, right? The alternative to free trade is um, is protectionism, it's favoritism, and you just end up with this activist trade policy where you are encouraging companies and trade associations to try to, you know, seek um, special special treatment. It's called rent seeking. They're trying to curry favor. So, you know, even if we can't do the redistribution, ideally, 
you know, and sure there are going to be some winners and losers from trade and technology, um, but you still need to look at the counterfactual, right? And so we ultimately cannot protect every single American worker from global competition, right? But all we can do though is help write the rules that we believe in, and then you got to let people run the race. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.